we continue to look at the Gospel of Mark. And I'm sad, it's sad to think, I'm sad to think that we'll soon be finishing this Gospel. In fact, after the message this morning, there'll probably only be one more. And some of you may be thinking, but chapter 16 has 20 verses. We're still in Mark 15. How's that going to happen? Well, the reality is that there aren't 20 verses in Mark 16. There are eight. You say, there you go again, Matthew, overly confident in your poor mathematic skills. But the fact is that your Bible will have verses 9 through to 20 of Mark 16 in brackets. And the reason that it's in brackets is because the earliest... Uh, Most credible manuscripts in the original language simply do not include verses 9 through 20. And if you took time later today to read verses 9 through 20, you would immediately notice, having been in Mark now for almost three years, just how unlike the wording is, how different it is to Mark. Others have done excellent sermons on explaining why verses 9 through 20 are not inspired Scripture. And so instead of spending an entire last message on Mark explaining why those verses aren't actually a part of the inspired Gospel of Mark, we'll end at verse 8 of chapter 16. Meaning that we have this morning, which will complete chapter 15, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, looking at verses 1 through 8, which is one complete unit to close out this most precious gospel. Between finishing that and the start of summer, I want us to do a series on the church. On the church. About five Sundays, looking at why we do what we do. And what the Lord's plan is, what the Lord's mission is for the church. A lot of confusion, a lot of mission drift, if you will, exists today among believers concerning the church, and so I think, I think we need to look at God's plan and His mission for what the church is. So be praying about that, and I'm always thankful for your prayers. But before all of that, we have still much for our hearts to see in Mark. You know, when you commit to sequential exposition, which is what we do here, believing that it is the biblical and historical means by which God desires His flock to be fed, when you commit to that sequential exposition and you set sail, whatever the topic, whatever the scenario, whatever the theology that arises, you preach it. And no matter how controversial it is, no matter how obscure it is, no matter what it is, we look at it. And this morning... After all the calamity and the chaos and the glorious display of Christ on the cross in the text, we come now to a very intriguing little portion of Scripture. We've seen so far all the major components of Christianity as we've looked at this Gospel. And here now is one component of Christianity that is often overlooked. One that is often read just in a hurry to get to the power and the glory of the resurrection which we'll see, Lord willing, next week in our last message of Mark. Between the horrors and the holiness of the cross and the miraculous nature of the resurrection, between those two is the burial of Jesus. And so that's where the Lord has us this morning. And there are some important elements to all of this that we'll see. So let's read our passage this morning together and then ask the Lord as we do to bless and aid our time, that it wouldn't just be some religious 
religiosity that we do from Sunday to Sunday, but that He would really bless and aid us. And so we're going to be reading in verse 42 of Mark 15 through to the end of the chapter. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. A prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and, the, and, mother, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking, Lord, would you please bless this time? Help us to appropriate and be attentive. And to absorb all that you would have us. Aid us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We really do live in a time where human language is ever-changing. It's always ever-changing, but it seems to be ever-morphing. And with that comes the importance of the usage of particular words for particular times. I've heard several times more sanctified saints than I over the years point out the lack of reverence and awe that present, previous and present generations have for words. Words like awesome. Words like epic and the like. I'm as guilty as any of my fellow millennials, which I sneak into just, for throwing around words that were once kept to refer to the majesty and glory of God. Not a bike or a car or a camera or a photo i get that and inside christian circles it's become now normal to call many things a miracle when in fact they are not i mean i use the illustration often and it's one of my own so it's not very good but if you were driving along with your family or your friends and your car run out of petrol in the dark of night in the middle of nowhere and you happen to get out of that car and behold next to you was a tree and then all of a sudden in the trunk of that tree appeared a petrol bowser and you were able to fill up your car with petrol and head on your way what would you say about that you'd say that's a miracle right now imagine if you were driving along with your family or your friends and your car ran out of petrol in the dark of night in the middle of nowhere And a person drove by, kindly pulled over, and they had with them in their boot a jerry can full of petrol, which they kindly gave to you, and off you went. A vast majority of Christians would call that what? A miracle. But it's not. It's not. Why not? Why isn't it a miracle? Well, a miracle is an event or an occurrence that enters into the norm and breaks into what is normative and by its very nature then becomes supernatural. 
A tree trunk with fuel coming out of it? That's extraordinary and supernatural. A person driving by with a jerry can? That's not supernatural or miraculous. What is that? That is providential. Providential. And we believers, as believers, we believe in what's called the doctrine of divine providence. Which states at its very core that God is in control of all things. Divine providence speaks to the way in which God is working in and through the details of life. From the biggest to the most minute, from the massive to the most seemingly mundane. In order to sustain the universe for one, to bring about the fulfillment of His divine plan of redemption for two, and to protect His people, that is, you and me. And also, in His divine providence, includes the restoration of all things to Himself, which He is on His mission of doing. And so, here in our passage, we are seeing, we've just read, and we're going to see providence playing out before our very eyes. Now, so very often, God's divine providence collides with God's supernatural, particularly as it pertains to salvation, which I need you to understand, salvation, the conversion of a soul, is in of itself miraculous, supernatural. We believe in the miraculous. We worship, a, we worship and are partakers in a supernatural faith. Why is salvation miraculous? Because God breaks into the norm, breaks into the world, and supernaturally transforms a person's mind, affections, and will. And so here this morning, we'll see very much God's providence on display in the burial of Christ, which brings about some wonderful events. This is an important event indeed, the burial. And our passage this morning, inside of our passage this morning, we will see four reasons why the burial is important. In my study this week, I have adapted my structural outline of the passage from a friend, Jesse Johnson's outline that he used in his work on the passage that he entitled Death's Greatest Victory. I was able to, to outline this passage this morning with his help. And while we look at the all the verses indeed, which we will do, you'll soon see that this outline doesn't sequentially correspond to a particular verse or verses necessarily. But it's good to mix things up a little bit. And this passage here on the burial is, it certainly mixes it up a little bit. And so four reasons why the burial is important. The first reason that we're given in our passage as to why the burial of Christ is important is number one, I want you to see the burial confirms His death look back up at verse 37 with me and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last that is to say he died we've just seen Jesus being crucified the last two Sundays we looked at that where he made full complete and actual atonement definite actual atonement and here now because of what we've just read in our passage in verses 42 to 47, here is the validation, 
that Jesus actually did die. This is the official confirmation of His death. This event now, His death in this burial, becomes a part of what makes up the historic Christian faith. It is indeed what became the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the early church, the witness of all believers as they went out and proclaimed to the world as they shared the gospel that spread down through all the ages, even to us today. You see, the Apostle Paul testifies to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, when it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then he doesn't say, and then he rose again. What does he say? And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Part of the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ is his burial. His burial authenticates his death. Look at verse 42. It says, when evening had already come. It was now dark. Jesus had been, well it was heading towards being dark rather. Jesus has now been on the cross for six hours. And we see from the middle of verse 42 that it was what was called preparation day. Preparation day. But first, I want you to note there the reason for Joseph, this man that we'll hear about, the reason for Joseph coming for Jesus' body. It's in the word because. Do you see that there? When, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day. What day of the week was Jesus crucified? It was Friday. And what comes after Friday? Saturday. And when does, when does the Sabbath begin? Some of you are going to say Saturday. But yeah, that's right. Not exactly Saturday. The Sabbath begins sunset Friday. And because no work is to be done on the Sabbath, that is Friday night, no work is to be done, the burial needed to occur before sunset on Friday, before the Sabbath. For the Jews, it would be unacceptable to wait to bury someone or to bury a person on the Sabbath. The Romans would just leave people up there to, to, to be publicly displayed as a as a dis- Bickable criminal, and to remind the people who's in charge. But for the Jews, it was actually law to take down the body. In fact, there was a law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, that says this If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, that is, crucify him, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. And so think about it for a moment. If there wasn't a burial, if if Jesus didn't breathe His last, but actually just kind of came back to life, came back to consciousness upon the cross, or even 
Yet he actually, imagine Jesus did die on the cross and then just rose again to life on the cross and there was no burial. Then it could be well argued that Jesus never really died. That he just suffered a lot. And then he came back to consciousness, if you will. That he just survived the suffering. But because there was an actual burial, we know that Jesus actually died. There's no room at all to interject that, oh, he just suffered, went into consciousness, and then he came back too on the cross, or even afterwards. The fact that there's a burial confirms and cements the fact of his death. And as a side note, people want to get all up in arms and write a lot. I've read a lot about it about how we cannot know for certain the day that Jesus died. That, that He really died Thursday. A lot of people say He died on Thursday. But right there in verse 42 is rock-solid evidence that Jesus died Friday. It's right there for you. Because it was the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. Jesus died for real. That's important. And the burial confirms that. The second reason... The burial is important is, number two, because the burial fulfills prophecy. John chapter 19, 31 to 36, that all tells us there that Pilate wanted the bodies down from the cross to be buried because it was a high Sabbath. Why was it a high Sabbath? Kids, tell me, why was it a high Sabbath? Because it was the Passover Sabbath. Sabbaths happened every sunset from Friday through, but this was the Passover one. This was what they called the High Sabbath. And so Pilate actually wanted them down this time. Normally let them hang up, but he wanted them down because it was a High Sabbath. And so Pilate asks the soldiers to do what? He asks them to go and break the legs of all those men that are just being crucified. And when the soldiers go, we're told they what? They break the legs of the two criminals, but not Jesus' legs. Breaking the legs of the criminals meant that they would die faster. They don't break Jesus' legs. Why? Because he was already dead, right? And to be sure, what do they do? They then thrust the spear into his side. Jesus, the Passover lamb here, in his death, down into his burial, fulfills the requirements for a Passover lamb. Exodus Chapter 12, verse 46 says, The Passover lamb is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. In the providence of God, by His providence, as He fulfills prophecy, He ensures that not one bone of Jesus is broken. Psalm 34, verse 20 says, Yahweh keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12 says, You shall leave none of it, that is the Passover lamb until morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all of the statutes of the Passover. You shall observe it. So Jesus dies, and then on his way to be buried, he fulfills prophecy, even in his death. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo what? Decay. That is, God will not allow the Holy One to rot in the grave. So in His death, Jesus fulfills prophecy. 
Because in his dying, he will not decay, but we know he'll rise. And before he rises, he's buried. And we see here in our passage by God's providence that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, is intimately and heavily involved. Who was this Joseph of Arimathea? Well, we see there from verse 43 that he was from a particular location. We know little to nothing about Arimathea other than it was a place filled with Jews. We also see in the middle of verse 43 that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. Now, that's not Hastings Council or the regional council. That is the council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. More on all of that in a moment. Matthew 27 verse 57 says this, When it was evening, there came a rich man named Joseph from Arimathea. Listen carefully to Isaiah 53 verse 9, which was written, you know, some 700 years before Jesus came and dwelt among man. And it's here referring to Jesus when it says this, his grave, Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was a sign with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, this is interesting. It says he was with a rich man in his death. That's Joseph. God in his providence sent along Joseph, a rich man, like we just read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven. Fulfillment of prophecy. But what about when God says his grave was assigned to wicked men? How is he fulfilling that? Well, it was the way of the Roman Empire to take robbers and low lives as those charged with treason and sedition who'd been crucified. And after they'd been hanging there, they would then take their bodies and dump them outside of the city. They weren't afforded the privilege of a proper burial at all. They were just taken and dumped all together collectively outside the city in a hole. And so what is meant by that is that Jesus was assigned to go to that hole. His death was a sign with wicked men. That's where he was going. That's where he was heading. But in the providence of God, he sends Joseph. Did Joseph miraculously appear? No, no, Joseph was living his life. He was doing his thing and Joseph appears providentially. He, Joseph takes the body and he brings about an honorable burial which we'll speak about more as well. And so the burial, number one, confirms his death. And number two, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He was with a rich man in his death. He was assigned with wicked men. This is an important event necessary in the eternal plan of redemption. Now, another reason why the burial is important is number three, the burial replaces fear with zeal. John 19 verse 38 tells us that this man, Simon of Arimathea, get this, tells us that he was actually a disciple 
of Jesus. Hang on. You say, wasn't he a member of the council of the Sanhedrin? The same council that schemed and plotted and condemned Jesus to death? Yes, he was. But listen to Luke 23, verse 50 to 51. It says this, There was a council member named Joseph who had not consented to their decision and action. That tells us for the first time that there was not collective unity in the council of the Sanhedrin to condemn Jesus to death. So you have a man, Joseph, who'd no doubt first heard about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God and the need to repent and believe. And then you have a man, Joseph, who had then heard Jesus talk firsthand about the kingdom of God and the need to repent and believe. Because where did Jesus teach? Jesus taught in the temple. Jesus taught in the synagogue. The Sanhedrin was all watching on. You remember that from earlier in Mark. And at some stage in all of that, Joseph had been converted. But get this. John chapter 19 verse 38 also says that he was doing so, being a disciple, that he was doing so in secret, in secret, for fear of the Jews. And so up until this point right here, Jesus had been keeping his allegiance to Jesus undercover. And I guess really a test of validity for a believer is that eventually that allegiance with Christ that is kept under wraps for whatever circumstance, whether from timidity internally or from any kind of terror externally, persecution, etc., eventually that will come to the fore. Is it, is it possible for someone who's a follower of Jesus to keep it secret? Well, for a time we see... But eventually it will come to the fore. Why? Because God will bring about situations in His what? In His providence. Where you are placed by His providential hand to align yourself publicly with Him. The Lord Jesus will have no private allegiance. We know that Public allegiance to Jesus is costly, not yet in our nation, maybe in years to come, sooner than we think, but in nations around the world, very costly. This was very costly for Joseph to be publicly identifying himself, but that's what happens here with Jesus. Look at the, look at the middle of Joseph. Look at the middle of verse 43. It says, and he gathered up courage. He gathered up courage. His fear of man was as a result of the death and burial of Christ beginning to abate, beginning to dissipate, beginning to go away. And what was, what was being replaced was he was being filled with zeal. His fear was being replaced with zeal. Because think about it. This was no small thing at all to go to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Rome. 
no small thing to go to Pilate and request to bury in an honorable way the one who had just been condemned for being one most dishonorable. It took immense courage from Joseph to do this. Joseph went and asked to bury the enemy of the state. And thereby, what does he do? He then aligns himself with the most treasonous rebel, this Jesus of Nazarene, this so-called King of the Jews. There had been a war. There was a war, no doubt, raging inside of Joseph where he was moving from being a spineless man who, in light of who Jesus is, as that gripped his soul, as he saw what it meant to follow Jesus, that death was all around, that he began to step out in faith and identified himself with Jesus by taking ownership of Jesus' body and being the director, if you will, of his burial. You see, it wasn't enough for Joseph to cherish Jesus in his heart and be silent in his mouth with testimony of Jesus. The possession of Christ in the heart will always lead to profession of Christ by the mouth. And where there is a disconnect, there is either one of two things. The crippling fear of man that is a snare or false conversion that leads only to hell. And so Joseph, by going to the governor of Rome and asking for the body of Jesus, that he might give him a burial of honor, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes that the reality of the cross, the reality of the death and the burial of Jesus led this religious leader to visibly abandon his false religiosity, the religion of Israel, and align himself publicly with Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Have you not yet publicly aligned yourself with Jesus? Or do you shrink back for fear of man? Is he not worthy? Is He not worthy for everyone in your work environment, everyone in your recreation environment, everyone in your community? Is He not worthy for each and every single person alive to know that you are one of His? An ambassador of His. Is He not worthy? Don't shrink back. As you consider the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, may it fill you with zeal to be identified with Him. What did Joseph do? What did Joseph do to display this newfound visible love and loyalty to Christ? Look at verse 46. It says, Joseph bought a linen cloth. He took Jesus down. He wrapped Jesus in the linen cloth. He laid him in a tomb. Joseph, with help, and we'll look, about, we'll look at one of his helpers in a moment, Joseph took Jesus' body down off the cross, and then, according to Jewish custom, they would wash, they would have washed Jesus' body. They then take the linen cloth, which in and of itself is quite special, and they placed spices inside each layer of linen cloth as they wrap 
Jesus' body. So one wrap, lots of spices. Another wrap, more spices inside each layer. After that, Joseph, with help, then took Jesus' wrapped body to the tomb. And look there at the rest of verse 46. This tomb had been hewn out in the rock, cut out in the rock. Now, think about this for a moment. They didn't just cut the rock then and there, did they? They didn't just get to work. It would have taken days. No power tools back then. This had already been done prior. And in John chapter 19, verse 41, we discover it says this, In the place where Jesus was crucified... There was a garden. And in the garden, there was a tomb which no one had yet been laid. And so, I don't know about you, but I've always thought that Jesus was taken up to Golgotha, to Calvary, crucified, and then taken somewhere else, maybe down to another place, and then laid in a tomb. But, but there it is. The tomb was right there. Right on Golgotha was a garden, another garden. And then in that garden was a new tomb, never been used. We don't read in the Bible that a tomb opened up miraculously, do we? I mean, that could have happened, but we don't read that a tomb just opened up in the rock. No, God, in His providence, is working out all things through the thoughts, the words, and the actions. I mean, there was a conversation that took place sometime prior where the people cut out a tomb, perhaps not thinking even that Jesus would be laid there. Just God is working in His providence. He prepared a place ready. For his son to be laid. So marvelous is our God. So perfect are his ways. And so active and kind is his providence. Working in and through the ordinary to unfold his most extraordinary redemptive plan. So Joseph acts with courage and Christ is buried Now, we see that in verse 46. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So here we see in the life of Joseph, the burial replacing fear with zeal. Cementing in his heart that Jesus is who he says he is, therefore he is worthy of our complete allegiance, loyalty and Commitment. Why is the burial important? Number one, it confirms he actually died and that Jesus wasn't just recovering in the tomb, but died and that he will rise again, not from ill health, but from actual death. Number two, it fulfills prophecy, validating and substantiating the word of God and the truth of the God of the word. Number three, the burial replaces fear with zeal. 
as you observe that Jesus is fulfilling his father's will, that he said he would be tried, crucified and rise again. And so here in the burial is the reminder afresh that he is victorious over sin and death. And because of that, fear diminishes and zeal increases. You can trust who he says he is and be filled with zeal for him. And last, number four, the burial illustrates true conversion. This is the fourth and final reason the burial is important because the burial illustrates true conversion. We see from all of this with Joseph and this whole account in our passage and from others that we'll see in just a moment that God actually transforms the heart. And what constitutes the heart? You know this, mind, affections, will. God actually transforms the heart of a person and then as a result of being transformed, they then begin to act out that which is in accordance with their new nature. Born again, we call it. Being born again, true conversion, is not simply a work of our will aligning with God's will. It's not simply a work of our will aligning with God's will. You see, true conversion is when God completely alters our will, saves our will, reorientates our will, and instead of living for ourselves, we begin to live for Him. We just saw that in the life of Joseph of Arimathea. We begin to live for Him. We begin to identify with Him. And the reason that we can identify with Him fully is because at conversion, we have union with Him. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised up out from the dead by the glory of the Father, that is, He raised from His burial in the tomb, so also we should walk in newness of life. Now, baptism there is not talking about water. There is not a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. It's talking about being immersed into Jesus and being immersed into Him as the head. And whatever the head has, the body which is you and I, also has. And so in Jesus' death and in His burial and most certainly in His resurrection, we are united with Him. He died a death we could never die. He was buried in order that we might also be raised and that being raised with Him, we what? We walk in the newness of life. Tremendous truths. The burial demonstrates newness of life. And there certainly was true conversion and newness of life right here. You see, you recall earlier on in Jesus' ministry, He was approached by not a teacher, but the teacher the teacher of Israel, 
a man by the name of Nicodemus. Well, right here, as Joseph of Arimathea was burying Jesus, was wrapping the body of Jesus, you know who was here as well. Nicodemus. He was here too. John chapter 19 verse 39 says, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, that's talking about earlier in Jesus' ministry in John 3, when Nicodemus comes. It says, it says Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. And so, picture the scene. Here you have a member of the Sanhedrin, the most religious elite of the day, and you also have the most prominent teacher of Judaism in the whole of Israel. That's what Nicodemus was. He was the teacher of Israel. And what are they doing? They are giving Jesus an honorable burial. And get this. The types of spices, the myrrh and the aloes, and the amount of spices, and the use of the linen cloth, guess what kind of burial that is? Guess what kind of burial that is strictly reserved for? The burial of a king. A king's burial. Both of these men here at the burial illustrating true conversion. The providence of God colliding with the supernatural saving grace of God here at the burial of Christ. Think about all that's gone on as Jesus hung upon the cross. A criminal was saved. One of the robbers was saved, right? Who hung next to him on the cross. Who else was saved? A centurion was saved, standing right in front of him. And now we see a member of the Sanhedrin was saved. And we also see that the most notable teacher of Judaism, Nicodemus, is saved. Incredible. And as they were converted to Christ by the work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, they immediately shared in His death, His burial, and in His victorious resurrection, which is about to burst on the scene in our next message, Lord willing. And so there it is. What can we, though, what can we take home this morning from all of this? Well, certainly the importance of Jesus' burial for one, each of the things we've just seen, Yet there's two things I want to make mention of. First, you know, there is a very real parallel between Adam in the garden and Christ in the garden tomb. You simply cannot overlook it. We mustn't overlook that parallel. In my study this week and reading the nonconformist minister of the 1600s, Matthew Henry, find every nonconformist minister you can and, and read them because nonconformist is good. 
Matthew Henry, he wrote about, and as I studied his works this week, I began to see that we do indeed find a very distinct parallel playing out. What is it? You see, in the garden, as Adam sinned, that was where sin and death first received their power and effect upon mankind. As a result of that, death spread to all men, sin spread to all men. And here, in this garden, in the garden tomb, where Jesus lay, this is where sin and death is crushed and conquered and destroyed. And so yet again, another example of Adam, who once was our representative head, what Adam failed to do, Jesus now did. He is our representative head. And so included in the burial is our union with Christ. All the blessings that are His are ours. Second, the same God, the same God who was working His perfect providence, which we saw time and time again in this account, working His providence in every single detail of this burial, that same God is the same God who is present moment working His providence in every single detail of your life. We can take great comfort in knowing that. That His providence is not always pleasant. His providence is sometimes hard. His providence is sometimes challenging. But His providence is always kind. Because He's always unfolding His plan to bring you and I into full, everlasting, eternal Fellowship with Jesus Christ the Lord. And there are some of you who don't have fellowship with Jesus Christ the Lord. And you know that you don't. And so this very day, on this Sunday morning, you need to come and have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Him is the fullness of joy. In Him is the forgiveness of sin. In Him is peace with God. Eternal life. And so here our Savior lay by God's mighty providence Awaiting to burst back on the scene. And burst back on the scene he does. And he did. And he's risen. And he's victorious. And he calls you this day to come. 
He calls you this day to lay down your life. To humble yourself. To, to no longer play games with God. But to come and lay it all down and worship the one true and living God. Would you do that? Do that and then tell us about that. Because we want to pray for you and learn how we might care for you. Church family, God is at work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this time. Lord, help us to grasp the immensity of your providence, both in the account here and in your life, in our life. Father, fill our hearts with joy as we know that we are, by your saving grace, your people. We look forward to the rest of this day and the rest of our life. I pray for anyone here who hasn't yet given their life to Jesus, would they do so now and find joy and peace immense. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for just the display of the way in which as a result of His love and His laying down of His life, that those who believe in Him will never perish but have eternal life. Lord, we, we know that, that the centurion and the, the criminal and Joseph and Nicodemus, Lord, we know that they've been saved by Your grace and we stand forgiven at the foot of this cross. And as we look at the account of our Savior in the tomb, we know that He doesn't stay there. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.